Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for October 14th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, Kath, welcome Catherine Smith. Happy Pride from Atlanta. And Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, we had a one-week hiatus. Uh, but we decided to come back with a great guest, uh, a frequent guest of the show, but one of our best national correspondents. Uh, Jeff Singer of Daily Co's Elections is going to be on. He's going to talk to us about a lot of different races across the country and some overarching issues um, that are affecting different races, irregardless of geography, seemingly, in a lot of these places. Um, and, of course, a lot of news keeps going on as we're inside of a month away from the midterm elections. Of course, there's things to discuss, but we're not even going to start with anything that's an election because the White House and Donald Trump are just too bizarre sometimes to forget. And um, the first thing I just want to talk about is this past week, uh, Kanye West and Jim Brown went to the White House and met with Donald Trump um, and as bizarre as the whole uh, part of Kanye West's visit was about this, my biggest question was why in the world was Jim Brown there? Tim, I'm going to ask you that first. Any ideas? Why was Jim Brown even a part of this thing? Well, I mean, the, because of the opioid crisis, I, 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 I guess they're kind of off the wall thinking let's have a famous entertainer and a famous athlete here this should be good to talk with them about it because both of them come from backgrounds you know where you know drug abuse might be a thing i i guess i don't know i mean jim brown is from another era Jim Brown was play. I was watching Jim Brown play pro football in the prime of his career when I was a little bitty kid. So I, I can understand having a person like Kanye West, although please not him. Uh, but Jim Brown was probably the wrong professional athlete to choose. Of course, I don't, I'm not sure. Trump had many professional football players that would agree to come see him. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> well, and that's where, I, that's where I come at it from. I'm actually coming at it from Jim Brown's perspective. Jim Brown actually is a very politically aware, politically active athlete. I think when he was an athlete and since then, he's been involved in a lot of causes. Actually pretty progressive, I mean, from what I understand, almost to the point of controversial at times. Um and so, therefore, it just – and I mean controversial more from the left side of the aisle than the right side of the aisle. So it seems like he would be leery of Donald Trump and anybody that's been familiar with anything Kanye West has done since uh, – politically minded since even back to 2006 knows he's a bit of a loose cannon. 
So I just wondered from Jim Brown's perspective why he got involved in this. I think Saturday Night Live wondered the same thing with their skit. Um, it was kind of like he's the only one that came out of that skit uh, looking good. Well, well, Catherine, I'm going to let you have the first crack at the other side of that. What in the world is going through the mind of Kanye West at any time? <laughs> I, 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 I have love. no idea. But I do think that was a very strategic um, meeting. I think, you know, Trump is Trump and the Republicans are worried about an American vote and they're worried about young the vote from young people. And I think this is a way to try to um, remediate that. But I don't think it was very successful because I don't think a lot of the African-American community uh, puts a lot of stock in what Kanye West has to say. They might like his music, but I don't think they're looking, they're seeking, um, you know, political or, you know, uh, philosophical advice from him. I think they're more likely to be looking at like John Legend and um, some of the other more articulate and uh, empathetic uh, performers. So I don't, I'm not sure that was a, I mean, I obviously he's not going to be able to get any of those. Jim Brown. I don't get, I, I have a feeling that Jim Brown is the only football player that our president can remember the name of. That's not OJ Simpson. And he knew that, O.J. Simpson wouldn't be a good fit. So Jim Brown was the one that he thought of. And honestly, you know, do people, I mean, how, you know, he might have thought, well, this is an opportunity for me to say something that might be important. And turning down the president, you know, depending on your outlook, might might be difficult. So um, I just, but I, I, I don't think, I think it's just that, like you said, there's not very many pro football players that are probably like current ones, the younger ones, that are probably going to be willing to come to the White House. And I'm not sure that our president can pull out of a hat the names of very many football players. And Jim Brown was one of them. Yeah, and I guess, uh, you know, Ernie Ladd's passed away. There's a football player that actually was a American Republican that he – he could have had, not obviously not near as famous as uh, Jim Brown wrestling career was standing. Um, well, let's talk about, you know, Kanye West. And, and it wasn't even like, oh, I support Donald Trump's policies and, you know, anything that was maybe right-wing promotion. It was talking about putting a trap door in the floor of the White House and how he thought the red hat had magical superpowers. I mean, it was just... It was weird. It wasn't right wing. It wasn't left wing. It was just strange. Uh, Tim, uh, how did Donald Trump benefit in any way from being exposed or, or getting this celebrity rub? You know, I just, I, I just don't know anymore. I, I, I mean, that really sounds <laughs> terrible to say that on a political show where we're supposed to be hashing out answers and stuff, but. Nothing is normal anymore. This president is not normal. He, he, and his followers 
like to actually portray that as some sort of an asset. They've, they've literally sought to normalize this man and his abnormal behavior. Uh, now, they, there's some people that seek to do the same with Kanye West, if y'all can believe that. I have actually encountered people who would, with my own ears, I've heard them tell me, that that the, some of the things that this rambling profanity lace almost incoherent ten minute diatribe that there was a lot of great stuff in there if we just listen and and he's delivering this trash on television at the resolute desk in the Oval Office. And all this time I'm thinking, just imagine, just imagine for a minute, Kanye West sitting there and saying all of that with Barack Obama sitting across from him. And what these <laughs> same people would say, and, and they just, I, I just don't know. Any, I don't know if anything affects Trump. Negatively anymore. You y'all do notice that he keeps winning, right? He keeps winning, even with this craziness. There's no crazy too crazy for him, and it, it's just it's maddening. It's maddening that he's not having to pay for this stuff. It's just maddening. It, it's you know we heard heard the old Teflon phrase uh, applied to Ronald Reagan. It's kind of like Donald Trump is. Forty percent, and then something like mega Teflon. Uh, with his forty percent base, you know he seemingly can do no wrong, no matter how crazy it is. I mean, this was the guy, the first political four-way. Uh, he and I forgot which. I think it was an actor on stage with him when uh, he during the Hurricane Katrina uh, telethon said George Bush hates black people. I mean, pretty controversial. Hello? David, hello? David, I believe we've lost you, buddy. So we'll go ahead and continue without you if we can here for a minute. We were talking about Trump and Kanye West. And, buddy, is there plenty of material there, Catherine? Uh, Do you think, Catherine, you you can tell by, by the way I was just talking that I'm just, I'm at my wit's end about what it would take to just send the American people over the edge with this guy for him to just finally say, you know what, enough of this is enough. And yet today, if, if, if anyone saw Meet the Press, there's Chuck Todd, there's Andrea Mitchell, there's all kind of people on there talking about all these positive things that's going on in Donald Trump's world and stuff like that. What have we come to? I'm as puzzled as you, Tim. I, I look at it and I think, how you know, how could we, how could someone like Brett Kavanaugh get confirmed as a as a um, Supreme Court judge? How could, why is Kanye West at the White House and why is he given the mic? Like, it's one thing for him to be there, but for them to allow him that. You know, like you said, ten minute diatribe about that didn't make any sense. Why is that? Like, who didn't pull the mic from him? Right? I mean, 
I think in any other White House, we would have seen some graceful way to, like, get the microphone from him, or it wouldn't have been shown, right? I mean, it's just, um, uh, again, uh, it's a a puzzle that uh, seems to defy any understanding for me. And like you said, it's it's embarrassing because, like, well, I should be, I mean, I've been, we've been talking about these things for years. We've been um, analyzing and talking about uh, political uh, activities for all these years. But this, all this stuff, it just defies anything we've ever seen. And it's... Uh, oh, and, and Tim, I think I gave an incredible answer to your question. I just have a feeling I gave it to a dead phone line. Um, so you'll just have to take uh, my word yeah. for it. it was, but it was great. Uh, I, I don't know what happened. I looked down, I see a call's dropped. I'm like, man, who's dropped, Tim or Catherine? Oh, crap, it's me. Um, no idea, but uh, with the three bars here. But let me get, let me get, kind of move us to the next segment that we have planned, and that's here in Georgia, but it's a story that's really got national attention. My understanding, Meet the Press even picked up on it um, and talked about the um, voter registration controversy where um and where there's been kind of a last surge a push for more voter registration applications um probably more new voter registration applications really across the country because i heard like taylor swift her endorsement in tennessee boosted endorsements there or i'm sorry registrations there but in georgia we've been doing a concerted effort led by stacey abrams for a good many years now um and so a lot of them have been rejected, and when they looked at them more, minorities have been rejected. And actually, it's important to say minorities, not African Americans, because even Asian Americans and Native Americans have had a higher rejection rate than any other people. Um, and so it's just uh, really, you know, disheartening if you want to expand democracy. Because to me, you know, thinking back to Max Cleland and Kathy Cox. Uh, the intent of the Secretary of State's uh, office, for me, one of the big things was is to kind of get more people to vote, expand democracy. Um, that, that was always my thought, and it seems like those two folks really wanted to do that. Well, Brian Kemp, not so much. Um, Catherine, I know you're down there more in Atlanta, closer to the Capitol, closer to the Secretary of State's office, and, and probably in more of this. What have people been saying about this um, issue? Well, you know, it's been uh, a lot of talk about this. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, Perfect Match or um, that's not the name of it, Something Match, where, you know, if you're, example, my middle initial, my middle name is Anne. Sometimes I fill out a form and I use my middle initial. Sometimes I use my full middle name. With this Perfect Match thing, I if I, if my, how I filled it out, if I used my initial and not my full name and they couldn't find a match, then I'd be bumped. And um, there, I think there's a lot of those kind of um, things. And then before the show, we were talking about dates. So, like, in some parts of the world, we write, uh, people write the date with the, the month first, then the, the date, and then the year. And then in some places, they do the, month, the date first, and then the month, and then the year. So apparently that has been getting things bumped. So, I mean, honestly, let's be, let's like be frank. We know 
that the Republicans want to suppress the vote. They don't think that all everyone should be able to vote. But, I mean, they're you know they've even talked about you know going back to having only land landowners vote and all those kind of things. So this is a concerted effort by the GOP and the right to try to make it more difficult for people to vote, especially the people that they think are going to vote for Democrats. They make some, uh, I'm sure they have some algorithms that show that, that they're not going to reveal to us. But the upshot of this to me is that there, there is absolutely no reason why a candidate running for governor of a state should be able to keep his job as secretary of state and in control of the voting. It's absolutely ludicrous that this is allowed to happen. I, I, I just, I hope that some of our legislators are working on legislation for the next legislative session to change that law because it's absolutely, um, it, it's ridiculous. It, it makes, I mean, it's just wrought with p- p- potential um, fraud. Well, I mean, I will say this. Theoretically, if the Secretary of State's going to run for re-election for their own office, then they're still going to be in charge of the voting. Um, well, that's true. You know, and, and, you know, Max Cleland was Secretary of State, ran for U.S. Senate. Kathy Cox ran for governor. I, I think the, the problem is here is, is we needed to do a better job of choosing our Secretary of State to find somebody well, that's that going to expand democracy, not restrict democracy. Because if, if somebody was playing above board and they wanted to seek higher office, I don't know that we would have as much problem. It's just more about who Brian Kemp is and, and, and his intent, uh, irregardless of the so. latest round of commercials he does. Tim? You think so, that it's just Kemp? You well, know, I mean, I think it's more I, Republican I, Party, but I'm just saying, I, don't, I mean, Matt Cleland was Secretary of State, ran for our office. I, you don't want to say you can serve as Secretary of State one term. And never can run for election if we're going to have that I'm becoming, situation. I'm becoming afraid that we may not have a functioning democracy any longer. One group is controlling every last thing. You think this stuff in court's going to go anywhere? When at the end of the line, some poor conservative Republican judges are going to decide its fate? Does anybody really well, believe and- that? Well, and there and there's no way to process it through seemingly before election day, and then if it's after election day, uh, people will say, "Oh, sour grapes." Or amazingly, I wonder what would happen if, if Stacey Abrams won, and then Republicans said, "Yeah, she was right. We need to have these court cases." That would be kind of a bizarre turn of events, <laughs> too. Um, well, let's go ahead and put kind of a pin in this conversation and welcome on to our guests for a, really the umpteenth time from Daily Co's elections. Welcome, Jeff Singer. Thanks. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, great to have you. Um, well, Jeff, you, you, we're in just a fascinating time with so many competitive elections that matter, U.S. Senate, U.S. Governor, uh, House races, and it's with 500-some-odd of those, or 400-some-odd of those. It's hard to get all into them, so we're going to try to do a little sample. But I'm going to start us off with two broader questions and then we'll kind of narrow in. And one that's come up this past uh, week, they showed some polling from different states, and, and polling is a difficult animal these days. 
But it shows what some are terming the Latino problem. Do the Democrats have a Latino problem? Because given Donald Trump's rhetoric with the wall and whatnot, you would think that Hispanic voters would be maybe more Democratic than they are in some of these elections. Um, But some people are saying maybe this is hard to poll some voters. Um, What do you think? Does the Democratic Party, are they underperforming with Latino voters in these midterms and these polls? Um, that's a good question. We're, we're not going to know how much anyone is underperforming or not underperforming until the votes are in, but historically, yes, Democrats have had a hard time turning out our voters in midterm elections, young voters, um, voters of color, and that includes Latino voters. Just in general, Democrats have been more sluggish about turning out in midterm elections than Republicans have. And some of that problem has been solved, and then some with Trump in the White House. Democrats are very fired up to turn out. But, yes, polls have shown that um, Latino voters are less excited than other groups, than many other groups to turn out. How much that gap is, we're not really sure. Sienna, they've been um, polling many House races for the New York Times. They recently took a look at their data overall, and they found out about among white voters, about two-thirds said they were going to show up. Black voters is about 61%. Latinos about 55%. That's a big gap between Latinos and white voters, but I think it is possible to overstate it. And I also think it's important to note that even if turnout with one, of the, with one group or another isn't as good as we'd like, it's still a big improvement from passenger term races. So even if a big improvement, even if it's not what we want, that's really good. So we're just going to have to see. But one thing, I, there was a recent Latino decisions poll that said among Latino voters, only about half of them said they'd been contacted by a campaign. So that is potentially one area where we could try to make, make up some ground where, um, where campaigns could contact them and these campaigns, they're, they're not naive. They know this is that they need to do that. So I think we'll see some of that. We'll see a lot more of that. So I've always been fascinated by polling, but in the past cycle or two, if more people go to cell phones and whatnot, um, and then people just answer their cell phones at such different rates, um, I, I think – polling has become so difficult and I'm just glad I'm not the polling industry uh, you spoke of that live polling the New York Times did I think it amazed us we had a little text strand about it they had made you know thousands of calls and they had like a hundred people answer how many of our thousands of calls I mean it was just amazing now how many calls you have to make to get any kind of sample so then you're having to wonder how valid is the sample? Uh, what do you know about those um, New York Times or any polls these days and how many call, more extra calls are going to make? It's, we know that the, there has been a big drop-off on people willing to talk to pollsters. I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago, it was a pretty high number who were willing to talk when they were called. I, I don't know the number, but it was much, much, much higher than whatever it is today. It's something like 10% of people, if you call them, they'll – they'll go through the poll. So it's, yeah. it's a big challenge. And at the same time, a lot of people have talked about the polling is useless and they point to the 2016 election, but I don't think that's the entire lesson to take. That's the 
best lesson to take. What people forget about 2016 is if you looked at just the national popular vote, like just if you looked at the national polls that just have the whole country, who would you support? Polls are pretty good. They thought Hillary wouldn't win the popular vote by three, four, five points. She won it by about two and a half. So maybe a little high, but still pretty close to what you'd want. Um, among state level in states, though, that's where we have some big, big problems. Um, places in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, where where Trump did much better than the polls said, and a big part, a lot of pollsters they took a look at where things, what happened after the election, and they found a big problem was there was a big difference between white college educated voters and white non college educated voters. That in 2012 the gap between those groups wasn't as big. This time it was huge, and the big problem with that was like what you were saying, not people weren't picking, weren't answering the phone, and the problem was a disproportionate number of the people who weren't answering their phones or weren't filling the, weren't going through the poll. Those were people, those were white, non-educated, non-college educated voters. So you had samples full of white that were disproportionately white college educated voters, the people who were going for Hillary Clinton by more than pollsters thought. So. They just – one thing that they kind of realize they need to do more of is weigh by education. So when you have – so that you, they can try to work that in so you don't just get swamped with too many Democratic voters. Some pollsters are doing that. Some pollsters aren't, and we'll just have to see what happens. Yes, it would be interesting to kind of follow the trends and, and who's um, ahead of the curve on this. Well, let me ask you about one more David, issue that hit. Yes. Can I, uh, I'd like to do a follow-up question on the Latino sure, vote, sure. if it's okay. Um, yeah. Just, I, one of the things that I've, I've always, I, I have a friend who's Latina, and she and I talked about um, the Latino vote in, I think it was in the 2012, may have even been in 2008. And she reminded me that, um, you know, we talk a lot about immigration, and we seem to direct a lot of our talk about immigration to Latino voters. But Latino voters, um, for the most part, I mean, they should, are, I mean, not for the most part, they are already citizens. They're voting. And I think they sometimes feel like all we talk to them about is, is immigration, where they're just they're concerned about jobs and um, cost of um, higher education and health care and social security, all the same things that are, that, you know, everybody's worried about. And do you think that we uh, are a little short-sighted on what we target on Latino voters? Um, I do think that is a concern. And also when we talk about Latino voters, we're talking about a lot of different groups here. I, that's in true. Florida, especially, yeah, in Florida, especially Cuban American voters, they're they're going to have different priorities um, than, say, Mexican American voters. Like immigrate, immigration, like they're they're going, they are going to see the issue much differently than people who might have still on the other side of the border or families who aren't here legally. That's that is something that. Can, that we often just lump together and we shouldn't. And there's a lot more groups than just Cuban or Mexican. Puerto Ricans, for example, that's, they're, they are, they're already citizens, and 
we just had that horrific hurricane just a year ago in Puerto Rico. They're going to have different con- – those especially who have family still in Puerto Rico or maybe just moved, they're going to have different concerns. And there's just – there's many different groups. And, you know, of course, within groups, people are going to think differently. But – so when we talk about the Latino vote, you know, that's not really a monolithic thing. All right, it's all. just like the African-American vote. I mean, we can't yeah. – we 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 uh, sometimes make those same mistakes with the African American vote. I think we're we're getting better about that. But um, I, it's, I just wanted to follow up on that because I do think that we tend to think that that's you know their main concern. And for like you said, for many um, Latino voters, especially like Mexicans and people from um, South and Central America who still have family and want to bring them over, or they have um, undocumented people in their family or circle they're they're concerned about that but they're also concerned about like i said jobs health care the same things you and i are worried about so thank you Uh, david uh, back to you i'm sorry i interrupted oh no no problem um well let me ask another question and and this to me is even more much more uh, perplexing um i have seen more than one ad in our georgia governor's race and i've heard it's also an issue in the u.s senate election in um, Arizona, and I think it's actually been used kind of across the country, um, Republicans have picked up on human trafficking not as an issue to run on. I mean, hey, I think 90-some-odd percent of the uh, American public's probably against human trafficking. Uh, hopefully every right-minded citizen is against human trafficking. Um, but somehow they've almost made it on a wedge or an attack issue. And they've they've got more than one commercial running against Stacey Abrams. Uh, they they stopped just short of saying she's for human trafficking. It's just that she's uh, soft isn't even the right adjective in how they come off. It's just like she's oblivious to it or, or, or something. And I think they're doing the same thing with Kristen Cinema. And I believe they're doing it in other districts across the country. I, I just don't understand who's going to believe this. So my question to you, Jeff, is. How did the Republicans find this human trafficking issue and try to turn it into like a wedge or an attack line against Democratic candidates? Um, they're they're very good about finding things and taking them out of context and putting it in their own context. And Kristen Sinema at a hearing, um, she did she said something when she was objecting to the way a bill was said said that this bill to um this this bill that about high school students she i think she mentioned something along the lines of well some people might um pick up minors and not know that they're minors and that's a different crime than people who think that they're adults and they're both bad but we we could be punishing people more because when they didn't know they were going the extra step and she voted for the bill republicans of course distorted that to make it sound like yeah she she's pro-human trafficking, but they they put a lot of money behind those ads. They think they work, and the problem is, like you said, who's going to think someone's for human trafficking? But if you get someone with a scary narrator voice to say, Kristen Cinema doesn't care enough about our children or whatever, then, yeah, a certain number of people are going to find that persuasive, especially if they hear that a lot. Yeah, and I find it just very strange in our state because my understanding is uh, human trafficking is more likely to happen in highly populated areas, which would be an area that Stacey Abrams actually represents much closer than 
um, the Athens uh, area that uh, Brian Kemp would have represented. Uh, so it would be even seemingly crazier to our constituents to not uh, take this as a, a, an issue um, to be against. So j just very bizarre. But, but, I mean, there's been put so many points behind this line of attack. I figured there's some type of polling there or else these Republican candidates have nothing else. Um, well, let me turn this thing over to Tim. I think he's going to drill down and get some specific states, and then Catherine can do some more questions. Tim? Oh, good evening, Jeff. How are you, sir? I'm good. You know, three weeks left. <laughs> three weeks left, huh? <laughs> yeah, it seems like three years, I know. But, uh, <laughs> look, I've been, I've been a little perplexed by my neighbor to the north here, Tennessee, uh, in its Senate race. There, there's no doubt that the Democrats ran the very best candidate that was available in former Governor Phil Bredesen. Uh, the last time he ran statewide, as a matter of fact, he carried every last county in the state. I, I, I've hardly ever heard of anyone that, that did that uh, since the time of Gene Talmadge, who, well, pretty, pretty well voted tombstones and everything else in Georgia. But Yet, we find that Governor Bredesen is clearly slipping in the polls. There's no doubt of that. He, he, he now appears, frankly, to be headed for defeat. What, what happened there? So one thing about that race is we at Daily Coast Elections, we've always been kind of – one thing we have seen this movie sort of before where a red state Democrat enters the race. They're, they start out popular. Republicans run a lot of ads linking them to national Democrats who aren't so popular. And so they turn this from a referendum between popular red state Democrat and Republican you probably haven't heard of to do you want another Nancy Pelosi ally in Congress or not? And too many voters are like, yeah, we're going with the we're, we're going with the Republican. We saw that in, we saw something like that in Indiana in 2016 with Evan Bayh. He started out with hugely in the polls, ended up losing by something like 10, a 10 percent gap. Um, and it's, it, that doesn't always happen. Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota in 2012, she, she, defied, she defied expectations in one big thing to overcome. And Trump, you know, he goes down to Tennessee. He says, like, Philip Bredesen is a loser. And, you know, if you're a voter who likes them both, then that might push you into the Republican camp. And this and in the, over the last month or so with the Supreme Court fight, we have seen Republicans become – we probably have seen Republicans become a bit more tribal than they were before. Maybe ones who were open to voting for a Democrat went back into their corner. So Bredesen, he's – I think he's run a, a pretty good campaign. He is – he always has had to do this thing, though, where he needs to convince voters who like Trump, who usually vote Republican – who don't want Democrats in control of the Senate, that he's going to be different, that they should stick with him. And we've always thought that was he had an uphill climb there. We've always rated this race no better than lean Republican, and we still do. And unfortunately, I'm, what I'm afraid of is what we're, we were always afraid of was going to happen is happening, where just too many voters just want a Republican Senate, and even if they still like him, they're going to go for Marsha Blackburn, the Republican, because she has that R next to her name. That said, we're, we're still a few weeks out. We've, polling 
the polls we've seen this month have looked pretty bad, but we've only seen a few of them. It's possible that when we have some more distance from the Supreme Court fight, some passions will cool, give Bredesen more of an opening. I think he's the underdog, definitely, but I don't think this is over. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a complete flip, leave the South, and go to uh, the middle of the country. Uh, I'm, uh, nobody, I don't think, expected to see a bunch of competitive races in, of all places, Oklahoma. It, it, what in the world is going on there? Is it the education issue that blew up, or, or, or what's going on in that state? Yeah, Oklahoma's the Oklahoma governor's race is a really interesting one. So Republican Governor Mary Phelan, she's termed out of office, and she's become basically radioactive politically. She has if she's, – she's lucky in the polls that show her with an approval rating above 20%. Like she's just utterly despised. Um, the the education thing that's a big that's a big deal. Oklahoma schools have been underfunded for years. They just had that mm-hmm. teacher strike, but her numbers were really bad before that. And and part of it is just the economy has been really bad in Oklahoma. A lot of that was just the state had lifted had cut taxes for oil companies, which are big in Oklahoma, and suddenly they realize, hey. That's a lot of revenue we needed that we just threw away. And so, and you've had, last year, you've had stories about schools cutting to four days a week. You had school closures. It was really bad. So you do have a situation where a lot of conservative voters, they're much more open to voting for a Democrat than they have been in a long time. And unlike with a race like, say, Tennessee, a vote for a Democratic governor, it's not the same thing as sending a Democrat to the Senate where they're going to be voting for the Supreme Court nominees or Trump taxes. Mm-hmm. Republicans, are, Republicans are trying to make it a straight up or down Democrat versus Republican vote, but voters very often do see governor races differently. They don't mm-hmm. see it as – a lot of them are very partisan, but many, many more voters in governor races are willing to go against the normal party. I mean up here where I live in Massachusetts – we have a Republican governor, and pretty much everyone expects that in November he's going to get reelected. Charlie Baker is going to get reelected easily at the same time that voters are going to elect Elizabeth Warren. So you're going to have a lot of people who like Elizabeth Warren who hate Trump who are like, well, our governor is pretty good. And if you ask them, well, do you see that it's helping Trump? They'd be like, they'd say, no, I don't. And mm. so Democrats. So Democrats are in places like Oklahoma, they're trying to thread that needle, and Republicans are trying to stop them. They've been running ads saying that the Democratic nominee, Drew Edmondson, he's, he, he's just like Obama. He's just like Hillary Clinton. He's just like Nancy Pelosi. So hmm. we're, we're going to see how that goes. We've seen some polls, not a lot, but some. They've generally given the Republican, Kevin Stein, um, just a small lead, maybe 4 6%, not not insurmountable, but it's there. And Democrats have been trying to tie him to Mary Phelan. And they've been going after some problems with his old mortgage company. So we're just – Kevin Stitt. I'm sorry, not Kevin Stein. Kevin Stitt. So we will 
see how we'll see how that goes. I still think the Republicans have the edge. It is still Oklahoma, so even if you have more voters willing to vote for a Democrat, you're still going to have mm-hmm. a very high group of, of voters who just who are down with the Democratic Party in all forms. But mm-hmm. but I think I now, think we have a chance there. Okay, now now it. You know, the, there's a lot of talk about a wave, of course, and one place that that would really hit at the statewide level that it wouldn't do so much in Senate races is these governor's races we're talking about. And yet, and yet, kind of in your neighborhood, we're looking at Connecticut where we see the talking heads pretty much rating this race as no better than a toss-up. So what is going on? in the one vulnerable Democratic uh, governorship in the country. What's going on in that race? So Connecticut is sort of like the Democratic version of Oklahoma here. You do have uh-huh. a Democratic governor, Dan Malloy, who's very, very unpopular, and he's, he's retiring. And that, the economy in Connecticut has been struggling. You ha- you've had a lot of high-profile businesses leaving the state, um, GE, that – was probably the biggest blow um, moving to Boston, and Connecticut, and that's another that's a state that historically it's been pretty open to electing Republican governors. From 1994 to 2006, it elected straight Republican governors, just a group of Republican governors. In um, 2010 was the fir- when Malloy won. That was the first time Connecticut had elected a Democrat in in about 24 years, I believe. And but this is sort of another case where, like Oklahoma, you do have a lot of voters who who are angry at the national part, the other national party. So um, we do have. So it's sort of who with most voters, they they kind of have to decide, do we want to elect a Republican with all that's going on in D.C.? And I don't. And the good news there is polls have been pretty – we've only seen a few polls, but they've been pretty good for the Democrat, Ned Lamont. You might remember him in 2006. He was the guy who right. Joe Lieberman in the Democratic primary that lost to him when Joe Lieberman ran as an independent. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, Lamont's, Lamont's been leading. He's, been, he's poured about $12 million of his own money to his campaign. He's outspending his opponents. And Lamont, sort of, he has a bit of an advantage that he's not really connected with what's been going on in the state government in 2010, he ran against Malloy in the Democratic primary and lost, and so it kind of gives him a bit of inoculation there because he, mm-hmm. he opposed Malloy back before it was popular. And, oh, okay. Yeah, and and I think he's been running. I think he's been running a good campaign, and I think I'm I'm hoping he wins. His Republican opponent, Bob Stefanowski, I believe is his name. He he's nicknamed himself Bob the Rebuilder <laughs> after <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah. On so, that happy note, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm gonna shift it over to Catherine for some questions. Catherine, you there? Yeah, hey Jeff. Thanks a lot for being on tonight. We always like having you on the show. Um, I'm gonna sort of change the subject a little bit. I, I uh so this weekend is um Atlanta Pride. We have our Pride in October, unlike most places. Um and I just came from the Pride Parade, forty eighth annual Atlanta Pride Parade. I was there all afternoon. And for the first time, uh, we had a gubernatorial candidate and a lieutenant governor and 
I think oh, it wasn't the full constitutional officer ticket, but we had a lot of candidates marching in the parade. And um, I just wonder um, if you've thought, if y'all have thought about the um, impact of the LGBT um, vote on uh, this this upcoming election and if it's changed because of, you know, marriage equality and um, sort of a more, it seems like a more open um, attitude toward, um, I mean, there were a lot of stories on the, at the Pride Parade today about in the early days, people walking in the parade with bags over their heads so they wouldn't be identified and wouldn't lose their jobs or, you know, their family wouldn't find out. But today we had, I mean, there were thousands of people, families, um, every, you know, race, every age. There was a 95-year-old woman there. There were like everybody was there. It's the place to be in Atlanta on this weekend. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts about the impact of the LGBTQ community on these elections. I mean, I, they, they're an important group, and Atlanta has a very large openly gay community. I believe that in Georgia's 5th Congressional District, represented by John Lewis, that takes up most of Atlanta, I believe it has the most um, adults, same-sex adults living together in a relationship of any district or side. It's, oh, really? It's a very, yeah, it's, yeah I'm, I'm not sure how exactly the census defines it, but it's it's a high number. So Georgia does have definitely um, around the Atlanta area, a lot of openly gay voters. And I, I think, I think going out there like four years ago, I think it would have been unthinkable for a Democrat in a competitive statewide race to go there. And it's, it's a big, it's a big positive change that we're seeing that now. And I, I think, yeah, four years ago, I think you still would have seen Republicans trying to, to bash gay voters just openly on TV. And, you know, we've seen a lot of very, very disgusting ads from the Republicans this year and just so many places against so many groups, but I don't think we've seen that in Georgia or not very many places, luckily. I mean, anywhere is too much, but I do think that's at least a good sign that that marriage equality is becoming a more mainstream issue, even Republicans, so... I know that's not exactly answering the question, but I do no, think that's uh, worth no, pointing I, out. Helpful. I didn't, I didn't realize that, that about um, my congressional district. I am also represented by Congressman John Lewis. He was not there today, which is a first. Like, I've been going to the Pride Parade forever, and he's usually there, but we figured that he's probably out campaigning for other Democrats around the country because he loves to do that. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> um, yep. I also wanted to ask you, um, what other, what are, what is it looking like? And like, what is your perspective of how things look in, in Georgia for Stacey Abrams and the rest of the um, Democratic ticket? Um, so this is another race we rate as lean Republican. I think Kemp has the edge, but it's much more competitive than it's been in a long time. We haven't seen, we haven't seen many polls. Unfortunately, that's kind of a theme in many of these races, Outside of Florida and Texas, we're just kind of dealing with only a few group pollsters here and there, but they've generally shown us close race. I, I think it's going to be close, but one big, big X factor is Georgia's runoff rule. It's where if nobody gets a majority, you have to go to a runoff in December for state races. I believe for federal races, it's in January, 
But yeah, that's I, correct. I, yeah. So I think the the Libertarian, he's been getting about 2% of the vote in all the polls. Not a lot, but in a close race, that's enough to throw this to a runoff. So I think – I think there's a good. I think there's a good chance we're going to be at this in December. And four years ago, when we were talking about Georgia elections going to runoff, that was basically code for Democrats are going to lose because getting Democrats to turn out in November was hard enough. Getting them to turn out in December, January, forget about it. But this year, where Democrats are just so fired up, it, the dynamics are going to be different. So I'm not saying Democrats have a better chance if it goes to. December than we do to win majority in November, but it's not the same. We don't need to be dreading a runoff nearly as much as we should, we would have been four years ago. Hmm. So we'll, we'll see how this well, goes. I, Poll, yeah. yeah. It's, it's worth noting Georgia. That was another state four years ago where the polling was, it underestimated the Republicans. Most polls showed both the governor and Senate race going to runoff and both Republicans won a majority in November. So that wasn't necessary. And maybe that was just because the Republic, it was a Republican wave year. The undecided just went for the Republicans. Maybe Georgia polling was just off. And so it doesn't mean that's going to happen again. Or maybe again, we didn't have very good candidates. Um, well, I think this is a perfect place to pass it back to David because this is his, one of his ideas that he thinks is going to happen. So back to you, David. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, actually, I've texted him that I actually think that there's a decent chance it could go to a runoff. And, and Jeff, I hope you're right that it's a new day, although White's Fowler losing to Paul Coverdell in 92, um, David Burgess losing the PSC race, and I forget the year, um, and then Jim Martin losing the uh, U.S. Senate race to Saxby Chambliss in 2008. That's three times that I know that – Republicans have run, won these runoffs. I, I believe there may have been one other PSC race way back when that um, Democrats lost in a runoff. Democrats have really never won these things. So it's it, um, sometimes until you do it, it's hard to believe in yourself. Um, and, and so you get a little leery. Um, but let me talk about something that's kind of upbeat. One more race we didn't talk about. And I know there's so many we left on the table, but I was get one more from you. Um, it seems like since Andrew Gilliam won the Democratic nomination, that he had such energy, it seems like he's kind of boosted um, Bill uh, Nelson's numbers in the Florida Senate race. Um, does it look like Bill Nelson is safe, and do you think that's more what Bill Nelson did, the dynamics of the race, or was it a Andrew Gillum coattails effect? So it's a lot of things. First of all, I don't think – I think both the Florida Senate and governor's races, they're both very, very competitive. I think – I think they can both go either way. Um, Andrew Gillum, for governor, he's led Ron DeSantis in every single poll that's been released, but often it's just been by one percentage point, which that's not much to work with. Sometimes it's been more, but most of the time it's been one, two points. So it doesn't take that much of a polling error to, or indecided voters breaking one way or just anything happening to change that. And Bill Nelson, lately the polls have been pretty good for him, but – still only up by a little bit against Rick Scott, the governor, and some polls do, still do show Rick Scott leading. So I think both races are still super tight. Could Both of them could go either way. They could go the opposite ways even. And so by no, by Bill Nelson is, he very well could lose. 
Um, in terms of what happened, though, yeah, you're right. The polls have been looking better for him since around when Gillum ran, um, won. I, part of that very well might be Gillum convincing voters who weren't planning to vote that they should show up. He's, he's a very different candidate than Florida Democrats have ever run statewide. He's, he is the first black nominee for governor. Um, he's running as an explicit progressive in a state where, where Democrats haven't had much success statewide in a long time. And the ones who have Bill Nelson and Alex Fink, they ran as moderates pretty much. Um, although it's worth noting that Barack Obama, he won Florida twice a black progressive. So there you go. It's not some crazy playbook to think Gillum could win, but also I think it's worth noting for Bill Nelson, unlike Rick Scott, he doesn't have all the money in the world. So he had to choose when he was going to go on television. He couldn't just start bombarding the airwaves in April, like Rick Scott did. So he, he decided he was going to have to just hold his fire, have to just let Rick Scott punch him a lot on TV. And he could only really respond once he felt like he had the money to go on TV and stay on TV. So he chose to go on the day after the primary ended in August. So I do think part of why he's doing better is voters are now seeing his ads. Now they're seeing his side of the story instead of just a lot of why Rick Scott is great and why Bill Nelson is horrible ads. Um, and one, one other thing, Florida just had Hurricane Michael really devastate a lot of the North I, people aren't, we're not really sure how that's going to affect the race. That's just, that's a wild card worth keeping in mind. And it might be a while before we really see polls again, um, or at least reliable polls with so much of the North still recovering. Yeah. And what we had to wonder about um, Bill Nelson. We've been wondering, you know, pretty much this whole campaign about Bill Nelson and why he was seemingly underperforming. And it is easier to win the game when you run out of the tunnel uh, and get on the field in the second half. So that does kind of explain a lot. Um, Because I I do think that I thought that the Florida Senate race may decide the whole thing. Now there's other races that I think have kind of overtaken it and um, but, Jeff, you were so insightful. And, Jeff, I tell you, we hadn't even begun to scratch the surface. I'm not going to even begin to ask you to come on, but I'm going to tell you, if you were to come on the next three Sundays, we probably could ask you about a whole different races and never talk about a race <laughs> twice because there's so much going on. It's just so great to have you on this Sunday. Well, it's great to be back. Yeah. Well, um, I hope we can catch up with you then after the election but until then if people want to read you uh follow you on social media tell people how to do that so you can find us at elections.dailycoast.com that's k-o-s and we have a newsletter that goes out every weekday morning the daily coast elections morning digest you can sign up for that on for on email um at our website it's absolutely free and we run down all the big developments in all these races. So if you see a new poll in Florida, we're going to be talking about that. If you see so many of these ads that are happening, we're talking about those. And um, so you can find, you can also read, if you don't want to sign up for the email list, but want, you can also see it um, on our website. We post it at 8 a.m. Eastern time each weekday morning. So that's and on social media, you can find us on Twitter at DK Elections, and 
on Facebook at Daily Coast Elections, and we post the Morning Digest there too. So very easy to find and put a lot of work into it. It, I think it's the best. I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's the best way to get caught up on what's going on with all these campaigns. Definitely so. Well, thanks again, Jeff, for being on. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Yes. Thanks. Three more well, weeks. Just from the close. Of, yes, three more weeks. Um, Jeff Coe's of Daily Ele- uh, Daily Coe's election. Jeff Singer of Daily Coe's elections. Um, <laughs> really, just one of the absolute best sources of just raw information, and it has been for you know years now. Um, people, I think, are are, are just catching up that. Um, you can put data and information the way they do, and it's so much more informative than other ways you can um, display that same information. Um, well, let's – we have got time for about, you know, one more good topic. And uh, one thing that came up uh, kind of early in the week was Nikki Haley. Um, Nikki Haley resigned hmm. – uh, or she's going to resign as U.N. ambassador, and there's been speculation – um, a lot of different speculation went on from there's things with travel that may be an issue. Some people said, oh, she may run against Donald Trump in 2020. And then others said, oh, she wanted to get out before Donald Trump pulls out of the U.N. I read that. I still hadn't gotten a firm uh, you know, story, at least I hadn't. Tim may have, about why she's resigned or is going to resign. Tim, uh, what do you know about Nikki Haley and her job future. No, you know, there really hasn't been uh, anyone able to just pinpoint what happened. There was some talk about uh, this ethics investigation because of the travel thing. Um, You you hear these wild stories, but one thing we know for certain, this really took a lot of people by complete surprise. Even fellow diplomats did didn't have any hint that this was coming. A lot of Trump senior people uh, didn't have any hint that this was coming. So it really doesn't back up the claim uh, from, you know, the White House press office now that this was all planned weeks ago and nothing out of the ordinary. Well, as we know, there's nothing ordinary with this president. Uh <laughs> It's funny that she resigned, though, after Trump was actually laughed at by the delegates at his recent United Nations speech. Uh, Maybe that had something to do with it, and maybe she's just had enough. And then there's the thing that she could get out and really make. A lot of money because she has a family and kids to send to school and la-di-da-di-da. So it may be as simple as that. Although in Trump's world, guys, it, it never is that simple. Have you heard anything, Catherine? I haven't heard anything aside from that first uh, day when they talked about the um, travel. The she She apparently, if I recall, she flew on private jets with business people from South Carolina, people that she knew before she was um, at the United Nations, and they flew her home to South Carolina for events or something, and apparently that's that's the only thing I've heard um, other than these, you know, uh, sort of 
you know, she's going to run for president. She's not running for president. I don't, I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I no. say that. I, it doesn't sound, I mean, she, and when she was, did her little press conference or whatever with Trump, she said, I'm going to help him win again. And I mean, obviously she had sort of probably had to say that, but um, I mean, it might be as simple as I'm tired of this. This is hard work that, uh, this wasn't what I signed up for. I didn't think that we were going to be in this, you know, cr- this that the world was going to be crazy like this. And I want to go home and be with my family. I mean, it could be as simple as that. It might not be anything mm-hmm. more than that. I did mm-hmm. see her speak live once. And um, I came away with a sense that she wasn't as um, strident and... Um, as much of an ideologue as like Trump and his buddies. Now her tone changed once she became governor and then, uh, but, but I wonder if she's like, you know, maybe going back to that sort of, you know, I want, I want to, I want to do something that's productive. Maybe she didn't feel like she was being productive. I don't know. Who knows? Someday she'll write a book. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, so, so Catherine, you're saying that she's more qualified and closer to the center than Donald Trump. That's uh, <laughs> quite a feat. Um, oh, yeah. man. And, 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 and that's why I guess some of the never Trumpers are like, oh, if she'd only run, because they want anybody just so they wanted to vote for him, that 20% of the Republican Party that would love to. And, and I really hope for those folks they do get a choice. Um, but unfortunately, it's probably twenty, maybe builds to thirty percent. It's just not going to be enough. Um, but then, Kim, I love how you mentioned the fact that she's, you know, got a family and, and she needs to make some money. I didn't know being UN ambassador paid like a, a Walmart cashier these days. Um, no, it doesn't. Lot. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't pay millions of dollars either, which she can get out well, and make immediately. <laughs> You know, yeah. Let's, I mean, let's but you, you would think that somebody would would actually go, "Hey, I can serve this at least four year term out for my country." Because being you an ambassador is is quite an honor and a service and, to the and, country. And meanwhile, and, in the uh, and mean yeah, and meanwhile in the real world, you know, la di da, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it, it, the first it's time, guys. Kind of yeah, and and that whole travel thing, I just find that fascinating because the only elected official, seemingly that that's are not elected official, but the only person in the Trump administration that's really been drummed out for scandal was um, Tom Price, and it was because of planes. And if Nikki Haley, um, if this is why she really left, planes would have gotten her. I mean, you can in your past have held a woman down, put your hand over her mouth and tried to whip, rip her swimsuit off, and they put you on the Supreme Court if you're a Republican. But if you flew the wrong plane, that'll get you. Um, <laughs> I just find it mind-boggling that this the, the, the Republican's kryptonite is flying the wrong plane. Um, I, I think we <laughs> ought to just get rid of all these people that follow the candidates around, put them at all the airports, and write down who got where. And if we can catch them all in the wrong plane, it'll be the end of all of them because they flew the wrong plane. Um, it's just bizarre how this is <laughs> this is the the one thing that gets you, not stuff that's you know super immoral, um, like what Brett Kavanaugh was accused of. Well, um, again, thanks to uh, Jeff Singer, and um, till next week. Been the Cudsey Vine.
Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion 